Hello and welcome once again to the world-famous Driving You Crazy podcast. This is the show where we talk about all things transportation, not just cars, but we talk about trains and boats and kites and uh, uh, walking and and biking and uh, scootering and all kinds of different things. And today we have a great show once again for you today. I am the traffic anchor and transportation reporter for Denver 7 News, Jason Luber. I'm our very own pedestrian advocate, Joseph Peters. Not enough horseback riding stories lately, Jason. What's going on? You're exactly right. You're exactly We do not have enough horseback riding stories. Um, I do walk on a path around my neighborhood, though, that does have a sign that says, no motorized vehicles and no horses. Because there are some people that do ride horses in that uh, in the area for uh, w- w- the down south. There are some out west too, man. Yeah. Out in Lakewood, there's a couple. Of, there's one trail in specific that I know you're not supposed to walk horses on. There's a different trail that you are supposed to walk horses on, and See? there's one trail that there's no signage for that I saw some lady with a horse with yesterday. Horse on pedestrian uh, conflicts here. This Driving be, you crazy. Dri- <laughs> riding you crazy. Uh, you can reach us anytime. Here's the number, 303-832-0217. You can call and tell us we're great. You can tell us uh, that we're not so great. You can comment on uh, uh, the interviews or stories or anything we're doing today. And uh, that's the number to leave the message for the show, good, bad, or indifferent. And we do want to hear from you. And just in a bit, we are going to be going to the phone, and we're going to be welcoming Rosalie Ray. Rosalie is an advocate for free mass transit she also wrote a chapter in the book called Free Public Transit and Why We Don't Pay to Ride Elevators. It's actually a book, a collection of uh, chapters written by different people. Uh, and it's fairly interesting to he- see the perspectives of all the different aspects of it. So it's not like Rosalie wrote the whole book. She, she's in part of the book uh, in one of the chapters. And this topic, this free transit topic, actually stems from an article that was in our uh, Westward paper here in Denver. Uh, asking just that question, should public transit be free? So we'll get her perspective on that as she's an expert in the subject coming up in just a little bit. But first, let me take you to Oak Creek, Wisconsin. According to Oak Creek Police, a motorist called police just after 11 a.m. to report a reckless driver. The woman called police saying that she saw a man behind the wheel of a gray Nissan and she told police the man was driving between 20 and 30 miles an hour swerving all over the road, all the while with a live chicken on his shoulder. (laughs) That's pretty impressive. Wisconsin. In Wisconsin with the live chicken. Now, when police found the driver, they found this 42-year-old Milwaukee man and the chicken he was driving with. The chicken was not named in this story. According to police, the man was cited for his third drunken driving offense and driving with an open liquor container. The chicken was not charged. The Milwaukee Area Domestic Animal Control Commission was contacted to pick up the chicken. The chicken's whereabouts are still unknown. It's just a bummer that the guy was drunk. (laughs) I was so hopeful that he was just a regular guy who was out driving with his chicken. But no, he had to be wasted. Do you think at any time he choked it? Why, man? (laughs) Why'd you go there? Why? And this has to be one of the most head-scratching stories we have ever, ever talked about. So there's a man. He's, he's a Russian man. His name is Mikhail Galen. And he was distraught when the Russian airline Aeroflot, I'm sure I'm not pronouncing that in Russian no, properly. No, I think he nailed it. Told him that his cat Victor was just too heavy to fly in the cabin. The gray and black feline was already sick from an earlier flight from Latvia to Moscow. And he couldn't bear the idea of putting 
Victor in the cargo hold for an eight-hour flight. Aeroflot allows pets in the cabin if they and their carrier max out at 17 and a half pounds. But Victor himself, without the container, weighs in at 22 pounds. That's a large cat. Big boy. Then Mikhail came up with this, what seemed like a perfect solution. Get a mini Victor body double. Yes, he found somebody with a cat who could serve as a cat double. And with the help of friends and the power of social media, he found that miniature kitty named Phoebe to present for inspection at the airport. So the two cats and the two owners went to the airport, and the switcheroo was a success. Phoebe was deemed an acceptable weight, and the two men did another switcheroo so Mikhail could bring his pudgy buddy, Victor, on board. (laughs) (laughs) Photos, he posted on Facebook, showed the fat cat on his lap, peering out of the window and gazing at a glass of champagne from his carrier. But the story didn't end there, because Victor... Well, the fat cat was enjoying himself, but Mikhail was, eh, dumb for posting everything online. (laughs) Aeroflot confirmed that it had kicked Mikhail out of his loyalty program and stripped him of his airline miles for breaking the rules. The carrier started an investigation after this tale of the cat switcheroo took off online and they determined that Mr. Galen had seriously violated a number of animal transportation rules including failing to check an oversized pet into the cargo hold and removing the cat from its carrier on board. Mr. Galen said that he had 370,000 miles in his account. Really? Apparently he's a business traveler and he travels a lot. That's a lot of miles. And so it would hurt him to have all those miles removed. It wouldn't hurt me. I have like 1,200 Commenters on social media chimed in with their support of Victor's plight. A politician with an apparent soft spot for pets wrote a letter to the airline urging it to return Mr. Galen's miles and change its policies. Mr. Galen says that he hoped the airline would allow people in the future to pay extra to bring an overweight pet in the cabin. He also said that Victor is on a special diet. Oh, he seems so special. And that he had to bring the cat on the trip because he was moving for a work contract. Hmm. Suspicious here. I mean, it is Russia. Why are we Why are we throwing a fit over seven pounds? Let the man have his cat on the plane. That's what I had with the whole spirit deal. I had two bags. One was 45 pounds. One was 35. Their bag limit was 40. Put them together, same weight, boom, we're done. But no, I had to move one thing from one thing to one thing to the other, and so they could both be 40 pounds. If it was a 45-pound cat and a 35-pound cat, we might have had a much more healthy discussion. Unfortunately, your story involved two things of luggage, and this story involves two very handsome cats. (laughs) And so the cats are going to get a lot more attention and also a lot more of my sympathy. But the news hasn't been all so bad for for, uh, Mikhail. Okay. Some companies that don't agree with the airline's actions have stepped forward with free stuff. Excellent. Apparently, Victor the Cat has now become a social media influencer. (laughs) One company has offered the cat cat food free for an entire year, and another company is offering bonus miles for car sharing for this guy to get around. He's also been offered a taxi for practically unlimited use. 
<laughs> Does the taxi come with the driver? I suppose. Well, I don't know. It's Russia. So I don't know. I don't know. I just want to know how you find on social media somebody who is willing to do a switcheroo with their own cat with your cat who is overweight and then do that at the airport not knowing that you with with, with the underweight cat might get busted too and then also lose your airline mile. During a layover, right? That's that's what's most interesting about this. It's not like it happened in in his hometown where he no. had a bunch of boys. It's right. it's he's just in the middle of nowhere. Well, Latvia, Latvia. but the middle of, okay, the middle of Latvia, (laughs) regardless. Also, somebody from Aeroflot got paid money to investigate this. Can you imagine what that job is like? Excuse me, sir. Did you bring a cat onto the plane? Was the cat your cat? Where did you get the other cat, sir? (laughs) Where did the alternate cat come from? That's what the next interview needs to be. (laughs) The other cat. Yes, absolutely. The other cat and the other cat with the cat. That's what we need. That's what we, that's that, that that is the burning question right now. Where is the other cat, and why have we heard from the other cat? All right, changing topics completely. There was a recent story published in our local Denver paper, The Westward, by Chase Woodruff, and it was titled "Could Free Service Solve Denver's Transit Problems?" Here, like in many other cities, there aren't that many people riding on the buses or trains. We have also a special problem here in Denver with our transit authority that they can't hire and retain their drivers and train operators. Aside from that, what would it look like if every city had free transit? Would you ride it more often? What would it cost and where would the money come from? Is it a worthwhile idea? One person who has looked into this idea is Rosalie Ray. Rosalie is a Ph.D. student in urban planning at Columbia University. She received her B.A. in economics from Smith College and her master's in urban and regional planning from UCLA. Before going to UCLA, she worked as an economist at the U.S. Department of Transportation. Rosalie's past research explored the prospects of free, fair, of fair, free transit in the United States, and that includes a chapter in the book, Free Public Transit and Why We Don't Pay to Ride Elevators. Rosalie, welcome to the Driving You Crazy podcast. Thanks so much for having me. So let's start with the idea of free transit. Why do you support this idea? So... I think the easiest way for me to answer this is to sort of conceptualize public transit as a right, right? We have in the Declaration of Independence that we have the right to the pursuit of happiness, which means we have to be able to get to what we need. And in a world where lots of people can't drive for reasons of ability or they can't afford it or they simply don't want to, public transit is the one thing that we have that provides that base level of access to the city that people need to get their job done. And so if we start to think that people should have a right to get around the city, it then makes sense that we shouldn't actually have to pay for something that essential, and particularly given that transit provides benefits to not just the riders, but the businesses who get customers, the employers who get jobs, and employees to work them, so that we need to sort of understand public transit as an essential service provided by the city. rather than something we need to pay for. But but Rosalie really the the founding fathers when they when they talked about providing the right to life basically don't kill me the the right to liberty leave me alone and the pursuit of happiness was really about ownership of property more than it was about having transit as a right because you argue in one of the chapters of that book that free fair transit is the quote natural extension of an understanding of public transit as a right incorporating the principle of access for all. And you just explained some of that, but it doesn't seem like that is a right as 
owning property and and life and liberty, those sort of things, uh, it, it just it doesn't doesn't quite compute, I guess, to me. Yeah, I mean, I guess my argument there is mostly about this idea of the right to access that you have the ability to sort of walk where you want to go and to to meet your needs. And so, if we have this sort of uh, sense of people should be able to move freely, like the freedom of movement. We need a, to be able to provide a way that everyone can do that, even people who can't drive. So how do we provide it? Who pays for it? Who should be in charge of it? How do we get that done in your view? So that's a great question. And there isn't a one size fits all answer. Um, in the cities that have done it, there's usually been a variety of uh, various transit sources from or funding sources from the federal government, from uh, often businesses who um, pay more taxes in order that people can then come access their services. Um, also, uh, people have started to think, particularly what's working in, in France, which is exploring probably the most implementations of this recently are payroll taxes. So um, employers pay a small percentage based on their employees. It's only for companies with more than uh, 10 employees. And that money then goes to a regional authority that sets uh, transit service and also subsidizes the fare. But corporations really don't pay taxes. And uh, I'll explain it this way. So let's say a company makes those little balsa wood airplanes that I had as a kid that I loved so much. Now, if that company is based in a city where they make public transit free, and that transit is funded by a tax on large businesses in that city, what the company would do then is to charge a little more to buy one of their balsa wood airplanes. So I, as the customer buying one of those things, am ultimately paying for that free bus or rail service across all the things I buy in that city. That could be a choice the company makes. And the real question is, do you notice now on all of the, on any things that you purchase from any of the companies based in France now, the extra tenth of a cent at most that there, so that goes sort of in any individual product. It spreads the burden of public transit around a much wider base than just the few people who use the transit in that city. But you could say that the overall prices of every good and service in that town would then be increased and then spread, as you said, across that town. In Colorado, we are talking about uh, maybe it taxing uh, not just the people in the metro Denver area, but also people outside of this transit authority. So people, let's say, in Steamboat Springs or out in the Eastern Plains would be paying for transit riders here in Metro Denver. Is is that fair for those folks to be contributing to something that they could never really uh, use on, a, on an everyday basis? So that's actually a really good point. And one of the things that's interesting about the Paris model is that it the charge is not the same across the entire region. Because it's true, a lot of people outside of the cities aren't getting the benefit of this free transit except for the one time a month or whatever that they come into the center city. So the tax is much higher depending, and by much higher, I mean it's like 1.4 instead of less than a percentage, where um, there's actually a density of people riding. Um, 
so that you do you absolutely should not have to pay for sort of pay the tax that you're not going to ever benefit from and it makes sense that people vote against them if they're not going to get the benefit from it and so the idea is you need to have the regional sort of tax that actually approximates where your transit riders are we are speaking with rosalie ray about free public transportation she is a student in urban planning at columbia university and also author in a book we're speaking about right now this how do you pay for a question with free public transportation is so interesting because at the end of the day and i think both of you guys would agree to this that it comes down to somebody has to foot the bill in the form of a tax and what i found interesting about you know, Rosalie, you were framing it as a payroll tax, and it does seem like that's an easier pill to try to sell to people based on the idea that, you know, businesses are going to foot the bill. You're not going to see it. It's not going to come out of your paycheck. But the question that I would have is, if this is something that is the ideal, and this is something that we strive toward, why not try to make the pitch to people as a small increase on your income taxes that goes towards improving public transit and do you think that the result of that, the improvements to public transit, would make people feel like they got a good return on their investment? So that's a great question. And it's the big sort of dilemma in transit activism is do you fight for better transit? Do you fight for free transit? Um, and I think, honestly, you, the, you, the idea is probably that you will eventually need to fight for both. Um, and so it's a question of which is more pressing in your city right now. Um, and I think that the income tax idea makes a lot of sense. I know it's something that Seattle has been fighting for the right to do uh, for a couple of years now. It's something that Mayor de Blasio in New York um, wanted to do as a millionaire's tax that could help fund the New York City subway. And if managed well, absolutely, you should be able to see a pretty good return on investment because what we know from the research is that once you start increasing the frequency of your buses, to 15, every 15 minutes, every 10 minutes, people can start to just show up and go. And then once the transit is fast and frequent and reliable, that's what gets people out of their cars. And that's what starts to sort of change the way people move around the city in a way that's actually noticeable. You just mentioned New York City. Uh, there will be congestion pricing for drivers into and around Manhattan by 2021. And the city, New York City does, wants to use that money to help fund their public transportation but what's typically forgotten is that human nature is to change their behavior when they're taxed. And you typically get less of something, drivers into Manhattan, when it's taxed, and more of something, riders on the subway, when it's incentivized. So when, when there, will be, there, there will be obviously some money generated from this congestion tax coming into Manhattan, but it probably won't be enough to cover the $15 billion worth of bonds that New York City wants to use in the improvements of public transportation throughout New York City. So where do you think the rest of that money could come from? That's a great question. Um, and I think that one of the big things, this actually goes back to the conversation we were having before about who should sort of be taxed for it, is right now, anytime New York City wants to tax themselves for better transit, they have to go to the state legislature and ask for permission which means that people and legislators outside of New York who rarely benefit from the MTA are the ones who get to decide. And so it seems likely that one of the things that's going to have to happen is the state legislature is going to need to let New York City tax itself and put in place things like the millionaire's tax or additional property taxes in order to 
start funding the MTA at real amounts, or the state could start to actually fund the, the transit themselves, but then you're asking residents who don't use the MTA in other parts of the state to fund it. So the choice needs to either be let New York City have control over its own taxes or pony up the money from the state. And it's smarter political minds than me will be able to tell you which of those is more likely, but it has to be one or the other. Because different than in the, the idea for Seattle, Seattle has a different idea to raise money for their transit than New York City, because New York City is looking for a revenue target uh, rather than pricing for congestion reduction. Uh, so that, that that's what they're looking for. They want to hit a certain goal of money raised rather than use that tax as a way to reduce congestion. Yeah, and that's a good point, because that's not actually how it's been done outside of, like, New York will be the first people implementing congestion pricing to make revenue as opposed to reduce congestion. So it'll be very interesting to see what the effects are, if any, on sort of how people get around the city. I have a couple of observations. One is a traffic podcast, but it's turning into a tax podcast, which is super interesting <laughs> to me. Um, second, you brought up this really interesting point when talking about New York City, saying that you know we they, they're looking at a millionaire's tax to sort of offset the cost of these transit improvements, but at the same time pointing out that it doesn't make sense for people who live outside of the city core to pay for these things because they're not necessarily using it. And it seems to me that, you know, far be it for me to defend millionaires, but they're not really using public transportation either. So I would ask, why not just a flat tax in that case that sort of hits everybody at a certain rate instead of just targeting that tax on the upper bracket? That's a great point. I think the sort of argument here is that millionaires, by and large, aren't, are, you can sort of understand the millionaire is the guy who's not just making money when he goes to work nine to five. He's making money from other people's labor. And the other people's labor is coming into him on the commuter rail and on the subway and on the bus and working from that. So it, it, the ability to make that kind of money comes from the ability to use the resources of the city. And one of those major resources is transit. We're talking to Rosalie Ray about the book Free Public Transit and Why We Don't Pay to Ride Elevators. She has a chapter, I think I believe it's chapter 13 in that book that you can read right now. I, I, when we're talking about free transit for everybody who rides on any transit system, whether it's in New York City or in Chicago or Charlotte or here in Denver, we are talking about an increase in ridership. It was tested in Denver back in the 70s where we had a free year basically it turned it was a free month and then it was there was a free day and then it would basically turn into an experiment for a free year during peak congestion times where they were not charging uh, anything for the transit well obviously when they did that they had a huge increase in ridership uh, but then you also have the uh, induced or the, the demand on the service itself so you have more people on the buses so you need more buses and then that bus wears out you're using more gas same thing on the trains so how do we get over that hump of providing enough service and doing it for more money because it is then free yeah i mean that's the question it's going to require some amount of sort of in capital invested in before you put free transit or even to improve the service whether or not you make it free is that you have to sort of jumpstart yourself out of the vicious cycle of declining ridership 
and then declining revenue and then declining ridership and more congestion that slows your buses and everything is terrible. In order to sort of get out of that, a big step is, first of all, freeing your buses from congestion and then finding that revenue from somewhere to start to increase the service to get the people on the bus again and sort of build instead of a virtuous cycle. But it is going to require money from somewhere. And the interesting thing is that Denver seems to be willing to vote for investments in transportation when it comes to the ballot. So there is at least that glimmer of hope. Well, only in the city because the city has voted to create their own transportation department. And it is going to be interesting to see how that all plays out because the overall state has voted down three times in a row now any new increase in either bonds or taxes or general fund revenue to fund the transportation department. But the people in Denver, the city, voted to create their own city department of transportation. And one of the ideas they're exploring is creating their own bus network separate from the regional transit district that currently operates in our city. Do you think there can be room for two transit networks in the same area? That's a good question. And I think it's um, great that Denver is really starting to take ownership and Denver City is recognizing that even if they don't run transit, their streets are what transit rides on and that they should take some ownership for it and making the transit plan and doing that. Whether uh, it makes sense to have a city bus system and a regional bus system, I think it depends. I think Seattle's model of buying extra service from its regional provider because they were in a similar situation where the whole King County region shot down additional funding for transit and then they ran the ballot again just within Seattle and Seattle passed it and so they purchased transportation from King County Metro and that's enabled them to increase frequency and that to me seems like the most efficient model because you don't then have to staff up an additional transit agency and have all the sort of duplication of services. But it really depends on what the relationship with RTD is and whether RTD is actually able to provide that additional service if Denver wanted to buy it. So is that what, um, is? do you think that was, that's what the, sorry for interrupting, but do you think that's what Denver's DOT is looking at doing is just taking over some of the more local routes, the ones that are only running on major thoroughfares through Denver and just paying RTD to staff them better at the 10 to 15 minute increments like you're talking about so that people can just go as opposed to having to wait 30 minutes? Yeah, so I don't, I don't know. I don't have any insider information on RTD, but I know that that's what Seattle is. Essentially, they selected the routes that were largely within Seattle. They had a sort of percent threshold, like 70% within Seattle, and then said, yeah, all right, on the 44 and the 27 and this and the that, we're going to add, like, add additional money to run those at 10-minute frequencies. And they had a goal as a city to expand the percentage of households with access to 10-minute uh, service. And they've sort of really ramped that up over the last four years. It's something like, 72% of Seattle now can walk to a bus that's going to come every 10 minutes. How do you get around where you live? Um, well, I live in New York City, so I take the subway, and it usually works. Are you uh, pro-car? <laughs> usually. usually uh, are, are you uh, anti-car, or does is car, are cars okay? Ooh, that's a, that's a very binary choice. I think I, <laughs> I am not really a fan of cars in New York City, because I think that 
they mostly take up space that could be more efficiently used by other places, but many family that I know and love live all over the country, and I rent a car every time I come to see them, and it's, like, not a bad way to get around. Uh, I think really what it matters is whether you're using the right amount of space for the city context that you're in. And for cities that are growing, cities that are getting denser, cars sort of start to make less and less sense. So what would you say then to the people who just plain prefer to drive, no matter what the cost is, if there is congestion pricing? So don't think of this as a old white guy, banker person. Think of this as a lower to middle income mom of three that's driving a minivan. What if she just prefers to drive knowing that she's going to have to spend money on the congestion pricing, uh, but she just feels more comfortable taking her kids and herself in a, in a minivan and, and having to sacrifice by not taking the kids to the movie because she's paying for the congestion pricing? That's a good question. I think um, it really depends on sort of what the rest of the context is of how she's getting there, how she's parking, all sorts of stuff. Like, personally, I kind of am not a giant fan of sort of just trying to price people out of their car. I think we have to sort of start building cities where car just seems like a less convenient option. So if she if she's living sort of where I'm living and is choosing to park in some tiny parking garage where they have to lift their van up on three stories and then get her kids and pay for that parking and doing all that, and she really does enjoy it more, like more power to her. But if she could walk to the the movie theater and spend the time chatting with her kids, like, I don't know. I think, on the other hand, in a world where she's living where everything is far away and she couldn't possibly walk to the movie theater, I get it. And I'm not actually sure that it makes sense to charge her more for that, given that that's really her only choice. Well, and honestly, I mean, I think what you're saying is something that people sort of gravitate to naturally, which is you, you do what's best for the context that you're living in. You know, if mom yeah. of three lives within a half a mile of school, within a half a mile of the grocery store, it seems pretty conceivable that she doesn't need the car as much because she can walk to everything. But if she lives out in the boons and it's 10 miles to get to the school and she knows she has to drive her kids every day, of course she's going to prefer driving. I mean, that's just common sense. So yes, the context of it and the context of where you're living matters so much in terms of what your preferences ultimately end up being. Yeah, and I, I have a friend, I have a actually a cousin and a friend who have kids the exact same age. One of them lives in the suburbs of Boston and the other one lives in Cincinnati. In the suburbs of Boston, they're walking distance to the commuter rail station. They have a family car, but they use it only on the weekends to go out and do stuff. My cousin lives in Cincinnati where the transit is not particularly good and drives everywhere and has traditions of like telling stories to her kid in the car because that's when they have time to bond. And they're very similar in other ways. And in a different context, I could definitely see them making those same choices. But it's really about what's available where they live. And it's why it's important to start. If you want more people to drive less, we need to start supplying urban contexts that actually allow them to drive less. We are speaking with Rosalie Ray about free public transportation and about the chapter in her book, Free Public Transit and Why We Don't Pay to Ride Elevators. It seems like we're talking a lot about getting in and around a downtown area. And, and the downtown areas are where there are high population counts. But we have urban areas where things are spread out, as we've been talking about. Maybe is it time to look at maybe smaller business centers like here in Denver, we have the downtown area, 
And then we have basically a second downtown that's called the Denver Tech Center, about 10 miles outside of the larger downtown Denver area. There are other cities that have similar uh, business developments like that. What are your thoughts about a city that creates several mini downtowns around the major downtowns? I think it makes a lot of sense. It's something L.A. has talked about doing for years and years and years and sort of has done with Santa Monica and other sort of cities. And it's kind of, I think, what dense urban areas often do. I mean, I live in New York and I almost never go to Midtown Manhattan because everything that I need and want is within that sort of half mile walking distance of where I am because there's enough people that there's restaurants and hardware stores and whatever else you need there. And I think that absolutely it makes more sense to sort of have these smaller urban areas within the city than to try and put all of the burden and all of the congestion on one central area. As a test, our RTD system is, they're, they're building out one of the latest light rail, or I guess it's a computer commuter line. It's up to the northern area of Metro Denver. And what they're trying to do is when it opens, I believe it's going to be next spring, they are planning to do just a flat rate charge of $3 per ride instead of the graduated fare based on distance traveled that are on now all the other lines around Metro Denver. They believe it's a way to promote the line, give a little uh, incentive for the folks that are up there that have been waiting for years and years and years. This line was supposed to be built so many years ago, and they're just about to get it in next year. So uh, they've been a little bit miffed that they haven't been able to ride on this thing. Is, is this a way to handle, instead of giving total free transit, maybe have lower fares at a subsidized cost uh, so we have at least the riders have some kind of skin in the game? Definitely. I mean, I think any innovation on fares is worth trying and seeing if it works. They may actually end up making more if they get more riders at this flat fare. I think it's also, if we're thinking sort of more incrementally, it makes sense to look at sort of, are there particular riders that should get a subsidy? So what you're talking about is sort of, we should give a boon to these riders who've been waiting forever. Uh, another group that lots of cities look at are kids or seniors or disabled riders or low-income folks. All of those sort of groups could get their fares covered and it wouldn't be the same sort of giant payment that it would take to go fully fare-free, but it's the, another sort of step in that direction. And you said that you are a, a graduate student there uh, at uh, Columbia University. So when do you graduate? And then what's after graduation? So I'm um, hoping to graduate this year. And um, I'm applying for uh, jobs as a professor, uh, but also thinking about doing the sort of transportation consulting work. Um, but really... At this point, I'm just focused on finishing the dissertation. So Well, and, and we are also available for uh, consulting work as well. That's correct. That's- <laughs> Good luck with the dissertation, man. My goodness. Yeah, that's going to be you. tough. We've talked to a couple others that have done that, including somebody that was working for NREL, and he uh, actually drove an Uber for a couple of months so he could figure out driving patterns and, and uh, the, the different ins and outs of Uber. It was pretty interesting when we had that conversation with him. Very cool. Yep. Maybe that's another job prospect. There you, go. <laughs> there you go. Rosalie Ray, thank you so much for joining us here and your insight on the Driving Crazy podcast. Thanks so much for having me. All right. There she goes.
Thanks again, Rosalie, for being on the show. Again, the book is called Free Public Transit and Why We Don't Pay to Ride Elevators, published by Black Rose Books. It's available in hardcover on Amazon. It's a bit pricey, though. Uh, right now on Amazon, it's $82. Well, that hardcover is expensive, and they probably use it as a textbook, right? On the Black Rose Books website, it's less expensive in hardback. Still expensive, though, at $53. The paperback on Amazon is $18.43, and the PDF is just 12 bucks. Well, there you go. Worth the investment, man. I mean, there's some really, really interesting concepts through that conversation. Yeah. And, and I think a lot that a lot of cities like Denver, like Portland, like Nashville, the ones that are up and coming, can really learn from in terms of how to create a regional transportation district that is effective. And how they are separating the city-run transportation from a regional transportation. Because I think maybe it's time that we take regional transportation and make it regional because I'm just going to use Denver as the example from Boulder to Denver from some of the other Longmont, Louisville, Littleton, they're all L cities, Aurora. I mean, you take, you go from hub, basically regional, bring them into the central part. And then the city can handle moving you around that city, probably more efficiently and, 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 and probably closer to your home than than can the regional transit. Well, and just frankly, from a budgeting perspective, yes, give the money to the regional transportation districts so they can build out that rail infrastructure that's been so successful around the metro area but doesn't necessarily serve people in the communities. And then let the communities figure out where can we best deploy our resources to make sure our people can get to work every day without having to worry about making sure they catch the one bus that comes every hour. And people have accused me of being anti-transit. I'm not really anti-transit. I've used transit, and I understand there is a need and a use for transit. I just prefer to use a car, and I don't want to be forced to be uh, to ditch my car to get on the transit. I want to have the option to stay in my car. It might cost a little bit more. I don't want to be charged congestion pricing to drive into a town and then have that be forced to go to a, uh, a failing transit system. I would like for all of it to work well together. That's that's my feeling on yes. this. Yes. And we're not anti-anything. We're just pro-common sense. Yes. Pro-common sense and pro-getting around however you want to get around, right? Exactly. So will transit be totally free? I don't know. Um but I, I guess we'll see. When, uh, you know what? I'd love to talk to somebody who is developing that whole uh, Denver, new Denver transportation uh, department over there. It'd be interesting to see how that is forming. Absolutely. Of course, we're available for consulting. Yes. Um, yes, by, we're yeah, yeah. both engineers, if you haven't heard. <laughs> if you want to comment on uh, this conversation or any other we've had or just want to give us a shout out or, or just tell us we suck. Uh, here's the number, 303-832-0217, 303-832-0217, and we would love it if you would tell us we suck. Yes, please. Thanks again for being here. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, I'm Jason Luber, the Traffic Guy. I'm the Common Sense Junkie, Joseph Peters. Be safe, and as always, happy motoring. Happy motoring.